I always find it amazing that, you know, we came together uh, just eight days ago. And at that time, most of us didn't know each other. You might have known one or two people here. We teachers knew each other. And over the course of mostly being in silent together, we really grow together to become a community of supportive, uh, like-minded, trusted, loving, compassionate organism. Isn't that amazing? I mean, really. Because so much, so many of us in other areas of our life spend much more time with others, doing much more talking, and don't have anywhere near the sense of connection, intimacy, shared life, care for each other. And I just think that it's really important to acknowledge how powerful the uh, kind of community is that we have created here. Partly, I mean almost exclusively, because of our interest in the truth. And the truth of each of our own lives as a human being. And then sharing what's important to do that, to to get the understanding and the support, the encouragement, the inspiration, to keep looking. And just as you have come to um, retreat here for nine days, I too started 40-some years ago, same, same situation. Went to a two-week retreat, didn't know anybody there, and got connected to this long lineage of people, just like ourselves, from the time of the Buddha till now, who are interested in waking up. And it's not, it's not because we're gonna, you know, capitalize on, on that and, you know, do anything other than wake up to the truth and live with more integrity and be kind. That's it. How does this happen? How does it happen that we're able to trust, feel safe, open, share with total strangers? at the uh, monastery where I practiced in Burma. There's a festival every year, first weekend of December, where all of the senior monks and nuns of the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition come to Rangoon, and they have a huge uh, convocation and celebration of Mahasi Sayadaw's birth and his, uh, the value of his teachings uh, in their lives, and it is just, uh, it's like a dharma, a dharma mecca, <laughs> if you will. It's just, you know, dharma talks over loudspeakers from four in the morning till ten at night, 
and it's just the whole <laughs> the whole energy of the place just really brightens up and thousands of uh, lay people come with them and at that time of course all the monks um, when monks gather like that they always do things together in order of seniority so when it's time for the meals like breakfast you know the gong is rung at the dining room and one of the monks who runs the monastery steps out into the pathway and he says uh, 65 wasa that means any monk who's been a monk for 65 years and you've got to be at least 20 to ordain as a monk meaning he's at least 85 can go to breakfast and you might see one elderly monk <laughs> step out into the pathway and start to walk up the hill to the dining room 64 wasa maybe another one <laughs> 63 wasa one with canes. And they keep going down, you know, 50 wasa. Oh, only 70 years old. 50 years as a monk doing this practice. They can go to eat. And then when they get down to, you know, 20 wasa, 30 wasa, you're only 40, 50 years old, and there's dozens of uh, teaching monks in this tradition. And then when they get down to three wasa, two wasa, one wasa, I could go. Meaning, I'd been a monk for a year or two or three. And I'd step out into this pathway, going up the hill. It's still dark. It's just at dawn when you can just see the lines on your hand. And I would get in line. I'd always be the last one because <laughs> I was the youngest monk. And I'd look up that, at that line ahead of me. And I would think, he goes up the hill and into the fog and around the women's meditation hall and to the dining room in the back. And I see this long line of monks just kind of... And I think, somewhere up there at the head of the line is the Buddha. Because that line of monks, and there's nuns going into another dining room, have been an unbroken human-to-human -human transmission of these teachings. And I think, wow. You know, the Buddha saw something, understood something, realized something, and said to others, monks at the time, if you could see things like this, you too might stop suffering. You might find a way to be to free your heart, free your mind. And that monk and or nun practice, realize what they realize to some degree of liberated mind and share that with others. And it's come down this long line of history for nearly 2,600 years now. And I think I'm at the end of the line. Because I was kind of physically at the time, I was at the end of the line. But now I understand that when I take refuge in the Sangha, it's not that I'm taking refuge in the Sangha before me, because I have, along with the other teachers here, have passed the Dharma on to you. And we've told you all we can about the way we see things that we have found helps to free the heart, free the mind. And so 
I'm not at the end of the line anymore. You are. <laughs> and now it's your uh, opportunity, uh, responsibility to hear, to practice, to share through the way you live your life, how you, what's important to you, the quality of your heart with others. Because there are untold generations of humans that are going to hear these teachings, going to want to hear these teachings in the coming decades, centuries. And it's up to us. We have to carry it from the time we hear it till the time we leave this earth. It's our responsibility to carry these teachings going forward. Because just as we have hungrily and just vitally need these teachings to help us, others will too. That's why we do what we do. Because we understand that. That these are the most effective, efficient teachings. They come to us with as much integrity as anything you can get in this life. And that's not insignificant. That makes all the difference in the world. And one of the things that the Buddha guided his monks and nuns to, to do uh, when asked about the teachings of the Buddha, he said, whenever you get asked by sincere people who would like to know what it is that you practice, what it is that you know, how to practice, then you're free to offer them uh, whatever you can. Knowledge, experience, encouragement, inspiration. But one of the requirements for renunciates is that they need to be supported because they live uh, lives of renunciation, as I spoke about last night, and they live simply, they live with integrity. The, the, their integrity is the quality of their practice. And while they, can, they could go anywhere they were invited, they could only stay if they were supported because the requisites of a monk and nun is a monastery nunnery, medicine, robes, and food. And mostly they have their own monastery or they have a place to stay, they have robes, they have medicine as needed, but every day they need to be fed. And if they aren't offered food, one day they can't stay. They have to move on. And that's what the tradition of offering the teachings of the Buddha, how they come to us. I personally have never paid money for any of the teachings I've received over more than 40 years. And never a charge given to uh, a day long, a, a week long, month long, five years in Burma. Nobody expecting me to pay to hear these teachings. In fact, it's almost just the opposite. Great joy at being able to let you, to invite me to share the teachings or to, to receive them. And when the first generation of Western students returned from Asia in the early 70s, 73, 74, and started teaching what they had learned, and this is 
Joseph Goldstein, uh, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Christopher Titmus, Christina Feldman, Ruth Dennison, Robert Hover, and John Coleman. That's the first generation that started here. They, they came up with, well, they, they were faced with a dilemma. We'd receive all these teachings freely. Now we're back in the States. Others would like to hear them. How are we going to do this? Because, you know, America and most of the West, Western world is a pay-as-you-go place. So there was this real consideration of how they were going to set up the teaching here in the West. And I think it was due to the just extraordinary wisdom of this generation of, of teachers, or that generation of teachers, to come up with this hybrid model <coughs> where retreats, organized retreats, and retreat centers like this would operate in the Western economic model of pay-as-you-go. But the teachings from the teachers would operate on the Eastern model of it being freely offered. And that was a hybrid model, extraordinary wisdom, and a great, uh, what? It was, it was an unknown whether that would work. I was around in those years from 75 on. And, you know, the teachers, they lived out of suitcases in people's living rooms for the first decade. Ten years, just suitcase from one retreat to the next. And when they weren't off teaching a retreat, they stayed in some of the rooms upstairs. That's it. That's what it took just to get this place started and to get the initial to respond to the initial enthusiasm for the teachings of the Buddha and the Dharma and, and uh, to try to establish the integrity of the Dharma here in the West. And it was really, I mean, they really understood, you can't just bring the meditation. You can't just bring the um, uh, calming uh, meditation because, of course, while well, that's what we're really interested in, the Dharma is so much more than that. It's got the whole teachings of the Four Noble Truths. It's got the whole teachings of the Eightfold Path. It's got the whole teachings of the Buddhist psychology. It's got much more than just the meditation that we've taught here. And the foundation for establishing the Dharma in your life, the three foundations are Dana, the practice of generosity, Sila, the practice of living in harmony according to the precepts, and bhavana, the development of the mind through meditation of both calming or tranquility and insight. And that's the requirement for those who teach here, is that they teach the three pillars, generosity, living in harmony, and the development of the mind. So it's incumbent on us to, to offer you some teachings in all of these uh, topics uh, every retreat. And this is part of the uh, the guidance for the talks that we give and the talk I'm what I'm sharing now so that when the teachers would offer teachings it was totally as a gift as we see it it's just a gift we've been asked to share some gifts and we're quite happy to do that because for us it's just our practice is part of our practice to just You'd like to know what we know. You'd like to have some guidance from what our experiences. We're more than happy to give it to you. And that's the way it is. And while we have no expectations that 
we'll get paid or we'll get supported. That first generation really didn't have any expectation. They didn't know. And, but this, the tradition got established and it has been established quite well now for 40 years, 40 more years. And it is the tradition now that students out of their own uh, gratitude, out of their own interest in having the Dharma available now and in the future, have found a way to support the teachers. And we're really grateful for that. But you should understand that while we offer the teachings freely and there's really no expectation of who, how much, when, where, you know, clearly there's some expectation that we'll be supported because or we, we, won't be, we won't be back. So there's that, but we also know, and I think all of us would say, we'll live on what we get. That certainly is my understanding. And evidently it works pretty good, because you can see I'm not wearing rags, and I'm not losing weight. So, you know, evidently it's okay. But I want to say also that when we offer the teachings and when students like yourself out of gratitude offer some financial support, when I receive, and I'm going to speak for myself, knowing the other teachers have their own habits and needs and responsibilities, but I'm somewhat reflecting their um, behaviors also, understandings and behaviors. When I receive financial gifts from students like yourself, and many of you here, some of you that I know have been supporting Kamala and I and others for some time, and we're very grateful for the support that we've uh, received that allows us to do this. So when I receive financial support, I don't consider it pay. The government considers it pay, and we pay taxes on everything, but I don't consider it pay because I've offered you a gift. If you, out of your understanding and your appreciation, if you want to practice generosity and offer a gift to us, we'll accept it. But you should understand it's your gift. It's your practice of generosity. It's not a kind of a quid pro quo. We'll do this if you do that. It's not a tip. Please don't demean your practice of generosity to a tip. It's not an exchange even. It's a gift. Here's a gift. Do with it what you will. If you wish to make a gift, we'll accept it. It's the practice of generosity that beautifies your heart. It's you acting for your own well-being to practice generosity. But when we receive, or when I receive uh, financial gifts, I don't consider it pay. But I consider it instead something like your investment in having the Dharma available in your life. And we have it now, this week. And if I continue teaching, and if IMS receives support, they'll continue to be here. And the Dharma will be available for all of us next year. And as far into the future as we can manage. And to do that, when I receive these gifts, I look and I say, wow, if, if this is your investment, your interest, and your uh, statement of support for the Dharma in your life, how can I use these funds to make that available? Part of it is to feed me and to get me from here to there and to keep me healthy and pay my health insurance. Well, I'm on Medicare, but still there's, there's costs. And, and to pay, you know, the, the, the ordinary household expenses like you have. 
because we're all householders. We don't receive monastic support. We don't receive support from IMS or other, you know, sugar Buddhas that just kind of drop anonymous donor checks in the <laughs> bank account. Doesn't work that way. It's just students like yourself make it possible for us to do this. And so when I look around at what, what do we need to have the Dharma available in the future, we need teachers. So we use some of our time, some of our resources to train uh, up-and-coming younger uh, students who show some promise of practice and have some teaching paramis, we say. Uh, we take the time and resources to train them. We also support our teachers, both here in the States and abroad, that we still continue to learn from. We, for example, print the uh, books, the Utejaniya books that we've distributed to you. We've, we've printed all those, many more copies. If you'd like more copies, you can write for them of that book or his other books. Uh, set up scholarships or at least support scholarship funds in almost most of the places that we go. Uh, and Kamala and I are developing a small Dharma uh, sanctuary on Maui, which is more of a hermitage. It's not a retreat center at all. It's a hermitage for experienced, self-reliant students to practice for extended periods of time. Room for six. So if that's of interest you, speak to us about that. And we just look for opportunities to use the funds we receive just to help make the Dharma, Dharma teachings, Dharma centers, Dharma teachers available now and as long as we can. So that's really how we receive our funds. And of course, Mark in, in Minneapolis has a huge and wildly successful uh, city center. Uh, I don't know. I'm most. I don't know who who of you is from Minneapolis, but it's, it's extraordinary. The other thing, just so you know, is all of our teachings here and everywhere we go are recorded and made available online freely. So the teachings are available freely, anytime for anyone. And I think I got this right. But I was talking to the one of the administrators of Dharma Seed last time I was here in the spring, and I think he was saying that there's something like a million downloads a month. That's a lot of Dharma going out there. There's a lot of people in the world that don't have centers like this and don't have teachers available locally, but they want the Dharma. And so part of your contribution, part of your gift to us supports not just me, uh, the, th the four of us, or IMS, it supports these teachings being available everywhere. That's extraordinary. That's really extraordinary. Anyway, this is the way it works here. It's a gift to us to be able to have this kind of relationship with you after just eight days. The intimacy, the care, the integrity, the openness, the, it's an re awesome responsibility in some ways to be entrusted with your faith. And that's the most important thing we do is protect your faith. You have some faith in yourself, in the teachings, in your aspiration, and it's our responsibility to ensure that you strengthen that faith and that we don't do anything to damage or threaten or undermine your faith.
So just in light of that, if any of us have said or done anything that has made you feel uncomfortable or uh, kind of tweaked you in some ways, please understand it's not our intention. It's we're, Please forgive us for being, well, human, doing the best we can. And we won't hold anything against you if you have some about us. Because, you know, when you're, when you're in here with this kind of stuff in, that's in our hearts and minds, you know, things get tweaked and you can, it's, we don't always know. But it's really important that we, we try to hold the container of the retreat with integrity and uh, so that you know it and so that you feel safe and that you can really open to all that's necessary. And not selling the Dharma is essential. It's essential because, you know, if we had to commodify the Dharma to, to, in order to sell it, you know, the part on mindfulness, hey, no problem. Here's a package of mindfulness for sale. You'd be happy to pay the price. Or here's a package of loving kindness or joy or some other great little package of Dharma for sale. You'd be happy to take that. Well, here's a package of the first noble truth of Dukkha. Well, Nobody wants to pay for the truth of dukkha, <laughs> right? And there's other teachings of the Buddha's uh, wisdom that go against the stream of our conditioning and our understanding and our beliefs. And if we don't have to package it for you to buy it, we can offer it freely and you can accept it for when your heart is able to. So in some ways, not having to pay for the teachings is an insurance for you that you'll get the true Dharma. So some of you probably will, over the next 24 hours, feel moved to support us. Thank you very much. We really appreciate your gifts of support that allows us to do this. Uh, I don't have all the details, but later this afternoon at four, the managers will come in and they'll have information on how to do, what to do, when to do, and all that. So it's just my responsibility to offer you these teachings. Now, I like to be transparent. I like to be totally open and totally informative and share whatever I can to, so that you feel confident that you understand what this uh, situation is around support for teachers here. So do you have any questions or any comments or any whatabouts anything that I've said, or this whole uh, way that we support teachers here in the West. And don't feel shy. You can ask any question, and we'll answer best we can. Yeah? I've heard that um, although the teachers have been able to support themselves over the years, yes. that um, some of them are having difficulty with the issue of supporting themselves in retirement. And I'm wondering if that's true or if that's too nosy a question. And if it is true, is anything being done about it? Uh, so the question is about teachers being supported while they teach, but what happens when they retire? And you may have heard that some are challenged in how to be supported as they retire. How does a timer teacher retire? Stop talking? I mean, really, I, I've kind of pondered that. You know, it's like, well... Uh, <laughs> just kind of zip lips. 
there. Don't ask me. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, if we all we all have learned, you know, somehow to live within our means. And there are some teachers that, you know, have other sources of income. And there are some teachers that just live, you know, from retreat to retreat. And some that don't even get enough support teaching to to pay pay their way. But uh, in retirement or as we as we age and kind of teach less, uh, I guess we'll all make adjustments. Um, some teachers have more support from students or other other means, and some of us will will see how it goes. At different times, there have been people that have tried to or wanted to kind of find some way to ensure that there's a retirement fund for teachers, but there's a lot of teachers. And there's, you know, there's wildly varying uh, needs among teachers. So things have been tried and, and different teachers have different benefactors and support and have different investments that they've made with their funds. Some don't have enough to make investments. So I can't really comment on anyone in particular except myself. I'm here, still talking. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll be back next year. <laughs> So the, yeah, the question is uh, for uh, what kind of teachings would you have available going forward outside of the retreat or after the retreat? And different teachers have different uh, opportunities or, or offer different opportunities for uh, receiving their teachings, whether it's through uh, online classes or, you know, follow us around wherever we teach, go there, uh, or occasion if, I mean, for myself, uh, occasionally, if I know someone really well after having worked with them and I know their minds, uh, how their mind works after a few to several retreats, then I might entertain a Skype call or something like that. But um, most of us are busy, really, really busy, just to kind of keep our schedules going and responsive and to take time for ourselves to do our own retreats and things like that. Yeah. But Check it out, you know, check with the teacher that you want some teachings from and just find out, just ask. Some are available, some maybe less available, but you never know. Yeah. Where do the teachers live while you're on retreat? Is it that property on the road <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where do we live? Uh, yeah, the uh, three of us are living down at what's called Gaston Pond, the the the, the complex of duplexes down there. They're little apartments that for suitable for uh, fam small families, couples, individuals. And Mark has stayed upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. From what you've said, each of you seem to have independent uh, programs that you uh, are involved in, yeah. separate and apart from IMS. Oh, yeah. How do we find out what uh, programs you have? Yeah, so the question is, how do you find out what we do, where we do, where we'll be teaching, things like that. Tomorrow, or maybe it's this afternoon, or tomorrow, there will be information from all of us how you can find our schedules, where we'll be teaching, other mm, 
teachings that we're offering and how to access them, but there'll be information available for all that. Most of us have a web presence. Go online, check it out. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your practice. Really appreciate your interest and uh, whatever support you choose or decide or feel is appropriate. Let me take the opportunity to thank you very much for whatever gifts you make to support our continuing to do this. Okay. So in a minute, Deborah will be coming in and Mark and Deborah will answer, entertain questions about practice outside of the retreat. And I'll see you later.